Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 116, Annus Mirabilis Part 3. On Tuesday, September 18th, 1759, Quebec formally surrendered to the British. Now the British had to keep it. They were in a very weak position and so offered generous terms to keep the city friendly. The garrison was granted honourable surrender, the first time the British had allowed this since Fort William Henry, and no member of the citizenry would be exiled. This was necessary. The French were already reorganising, trying to take the city back, while the British now had to deal with the supply problems the French had suffered with. The circumstances were dire, which help explains why the senior figures left, Moncton returning to New York and Townsend to England. Junior Brigadier James Murray was named Governor of Quebec. One month later, on October 18th, Commander-in-Chief Geoffrey Amherst received word that Quebec had fallen. He had been at Crown Point preparing to attack Bullamark, but he called off the expedition with winter approaching. The men were growing unhappy as conditions worsened and supply was low. Desertion started across the northern frontier, and Amherst felt he had no choice in November but to send the men home. The provincial troops may have been unhappy, but the rest of British America was delighted with the news of Quebec falling. And then there was the reaction back in Britain. For this to fully make sense, let's catch up on the rest of the war in 1759. We left King Frederick besieged in Dresden at the end of 1758. It had not been a good year for him. He had suffered a string of Pyrrhic victories that had left him with a large Russian army, which was defeated, but not destroyed, hovering in the east, while the Austrians had trapped him in Saxony. During the winter, Frederick managed to hold on to Dresden and try to rebuild his forces, but then his worst nightmare happened. The Austrians and Russians began to properly coordinate their actions. They joined forces and met Frederick at Kernersdorf, slightly to the east of Frankfurt under Oder. 50,000 Prussians met a combined force of 70,000 Austrians and Russians, and was soundly defeated, losing almost 40% of his force. He ran for his life, and was forced to abandon Dresden. Luckily for him, Russo-Austrian cooperation did not continue. The Austrians moved to invade Silesia, while the Russians stayed near Berlin. This division in enemy forces, and reinforcements from Hanover which had defeated the French at the Battle of Minden, saved Frederick in 1759, allowing him to survive until the end of the campaigning season for another year. Things with France were a bit complicated. It hadn't been a good year for them exactly, they had lost to Hanover at the Battle of Minden, but Hanover sending reinforcements to Prussia meant that Hanover didn't have the strength to take the offensive against France. This was a bit of a sideshow for France in 1759. Their main aim was invading England. 
the French tried to move its Toulon fleet through the Straits of Gibraltar. They got through, but not without the British detecting them. They chased after the French and caught up with them off the coast of Portugal, where they fought the Battle of Lagos. The British were victorious. If the French wanted to attack, they would need to do so with the Channel Fleet. Things had not been kind for the French in the wider war as well. The British had continued to push the French out of West Africa and launched an amphibious attack in the Caribbean that captured Guadeloupe. This was the state of affairs when word came from Canada that Quebec had fallen. Prussia was in dire straits and desperately wanted peace, so Frederick begged Pitt to try and bring this about. Prince Louis of Brunswick was selected as a neutral to try and arrange a peace conference. There was little reason to think that Austria and Russia would accept the invitation, but there was potential for France. France's finances were perilous after losing West Africa and Guadeloupe. Quebec had been taken and their army had been unsuccessful in Germany. However, they still had their Grand Armée. France itself was safe, and there was the potential to invade England. When an autumnal storm forced the Royal Navy to seek shelter in port, the French Navy suddenly had an opportunity to make a landing in either Ireland or Scotland. The British were able to put a force back together, and Admiral Hawke launched an attack in severe weather conditions that made battle unthinkable for pretty much everyone other than Hawke. The battle and the storm raged until darkness overtook them. It wasn't until the next day that it became clear that it had been an immense British victory. The Royal Navy lost two ships, both of which had run aground in the storm after the battle, while the French lost their last force in the Atlantic, which, to all intents and purposes, ended their hope of invading the British Isles. Arguably, the Battle of Quiberon Bay was the decisive event of 1759. These events gave Pitt a clear sense of what he needed to do over the next year. He saw the key to victory in the war as defeating France. Prussia needed to hold out against Austria and Russia, but it didn't need to win. It just needed to survive while France continued to suffer. France no longer had the ability to invade England by sea, so Britain itself could relax. The economy was doing great, the government had reliable lines of credit after the victories of 1759, and Pitt had no opposition in the Commons. They would withdraw forces from the home islands to help Hanover and Prussia on the continent, while they continued their main task of dismantling the French Empire. Instructions were sent to Amherst. He ordered the colonies to produce the same level of effort, and he would provide the same level of financial support to them. Amherst was given control of the details of the operation, but it had one objective. Conquer Canada. This, in practice, meant one target. Montreal. Amherst had been busy over the winter. He had already asked the governors for the same level of support and had arranged with Sir William Johnson to secure Iroquois support, so when word of Pitt's directions arrived in February 1760, it was only a case of continuing with its preparations. By March, the strategy was coming together. 
The French had largely been removed from the West after the capture of Forts, Frontenac, Niagara, and Duquesne. So Amherst gave control of everything south of New York to Moncton, who had 400 Royal Americans and 4,000 provincials, who were to entrench their position at Pittsburgh and the other captured French forts. Moncton also had 1,300 regulars who were sent to Carolina to deal with a Cherokee uprising, but we'll deal with that in a couple episodes' time. Everyone else was to be focused on Canada. He would lead the main force, about 1,200, from Albany westwards to Oswego. They would then march up Lake Ontario and down the St. Lawrence to Montreal. A second force would march north from Crown Point along the Lake Champlain Corridor, taking Ile aux Noir, where Burlamarque had centred himself, as well as the forts along the Richelieu River. This would be about 3,500 men strong, and was led by acting Brigadier General William Halavand. The third force, under Brigadier General and Governor of Quebec, James Murray, would be made up of any men who could be spared from the Quebec and Louisbourg garrisons and would sail up the St. Lawrence. The plan would be for the three of them to converge simultaneously on Montreal. This would involve a huge commitment from the colonies. After the strain of the last two years, matching troop levels would be very difficult but the northern colonies met the task once again through a mixture of enthusiasm and the public debt was now in such a high ratio when compared to the tax base that the colonies were completely reliant on subsidies from Westminster for solvency. 5,000 provincials were raised in Connecticut, 4,000 from Massachusetts, 2,600 from New York, 1,000 from Rhode Island, 1,000 from New Jersey, and 800 from New Hampshire about 14,500 in total. I don't want to rush into starting the campaigns of 1760 at this point in the episode, so we'll finish from a quote from Anderson's Crucible of War. Quote, Thus, in British America, the seventh and climactic year of the war began in an atmosphere of confidence, prosperity and cooperation between the colonies and metropole, that no one could have predicted on the evidence of the conflict's first years. The scale of the war itself had become almost inconceivably large. A conflict that had begun in an Allegheny Glen with the massacre of 13 Frenchmen had spread over two oceans and three continents, half a world, and had claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. There had been nothing direct about the path, and certainly nothing inevitable about the events, that connected Washington's wretched fort in the Great Meadows to the huge encampment of Anglo-American troops preparing for the war's climatic campaign. And yet, even in the spring of 1760, as officers were beating up for recruits across the northern countryside, and ships laden with munitions butted their way across the Atlantic, as John Stanwick's was supervising the completion of Fort Pitt, and Geoffrey Amherst put the finishing touches on his plans for the summer's expeditions, even then, nothing was foreordained. At Montreal, the Chevalier de Levet had been making plans of his own. He needed only a few ships carrying men and munitions and Indian trade goods from France to make those plans succeed, 
and if he did, Canada might yet hold out until peace could be made in Europe. In that case, all Amherst's meticulous preparations, all the manpower of the colonies, and all the military strength and logistical weight of Great Britain would add up to nothing more than one more chapter of frustration to the long, fruitless history of Anglo-American attempts to conquer New France. End quote. With your appetite whetted, we'll leave things here for the moment. Next week, we'll get into 1760. See you then. Music